something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today's movie on Weird House Cinema is the 1957 introspective science fiction adventure, The Incredible Shrinking Man, directed by Jack Arnold and based on a screenplay by Richard Matheson. And man, I've got to say, this one totally surprised me. This is not what I was expecting at all. For a late 50s shrink movie from the director of Tarantula, uh, I I was expecting something much sillier and much campier. And instead, what we got here uh, is, in many ways, a rather thoughtful and fascinating uh, science fiction tale about the search for meaning and dignity in the face of absurdity and doom. And I, uh, I suspect that a lot of the intelligence and the soul of this movie is, is sort of there on the page, like it comes from the story by Matheson. But also, the special effects are excellent for the time, and most of the performances in this movie are, are very um, kind of uh, nuanced and, and, and warmly human. This was a shockingly great film, and not at all what I thought we were going to get based on the title and the premise. Yeah, yeah, I had the same experience with it. The only thing I'd ever seen from this film is I'd seen a kind of famous sequence from it in which a tiny man who's been reduced to the size of a doll is hunted by his own house cat in his living room. Mm-hmm. And I believe I saw it in and it came from Hollywood. Uh that um, you know that older picture that had a lot of trailers and clips and a lot of joking and riffing of the material there. Um the, the riffing wasn't particularly funny, but in isolation that that sequence was amusing and, and kind of hilarious. And I just figured, yeah, the rest of the, the film would kind of follow suit. And we we ended up picking this one up because we were we were actually I think we were gonna watch The Amazing Colossal Man. Right. I went to Videodrome to rent it and it's not available on disc anywhere. And uh, which is a crime. Yeah, a which crime. is a crime. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but they said, well, we do have the incredible shrinking man. And not only do we have it, we have it in, uh, in this excellent criterion collection edition. Uh, so I was like, well, I, I didn't think this was the type of film that really merited that sort of treatment, but it looks, looks interesting. I love that one sequence. Let's check it out. And here we are. Well, this is another way I was surprised because I having so I had also seen the cat attack part of the movie in isolation in which it seemed quite funny to me. Mm -hmm. But in context, I saw it in a whole new light, even though I'd seen the exact same footage before in the context of the plot. I found it a rather frightening and effective uh, uh, action set piece. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the effects in this are, are great for the day. They were ambitious for the day. And, you know, you can't you can't look back in a film like this without seeing a few seams in the special effects, uh, generally speaking. Uh, and, and that's the case here. But by and large, everything looks looks wonderful. And if you take the film uh, in, in its entirety and you let it uh, do its work on you. Yeah, everything holds up really well. Another way in which I think we have to take it as uh, from its time is I did say the film is very like thoughtful and introspective, which it is. But a lot of that thoughtfulness and introspection comes in the form of kind of ponderously delivered uh, uh, stentorian <laughs> narration. You know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. it's like uh, the voiceover narration that like uh, tells you all of the main character's inner thoughts about his own search for meaning uh, is maybe a bit blustery in its delivery. Delivery, uh, but uh, d nevertheless, like the sentiments expressed in the writing in those sections, I think are really good. Yeah, a lot of it does have to deal with like fifties uh, American masculinity, and there are plenty of nineteen uh, fifties pictures that we've watched that have that kind of, that uh, that masculinity of the time period uh, prominently featured, but. Usually it's not self-reflective. Usually yeah. it's not at all analyzing what this is, that uh, what is this, uh, th what are these ideas, these fears and expectations that everyone's trapped within. Right. Instead, it's usually just like, uh, he here is your, your jawline who's uh, ready to punch the alien that stands in for a communist. Yeah. It, uh, as I was watching it, I kept thinking a little bit about the television series Mad Men. Uh, and in fact, my, my elevator pitch would be, what if the male characters in Mad Men physically shrunk and were attacked by their own cats and household pests? I mean, that nails it. <laughs> the The main character in this movie is literally an advertising. I don't know if he's an executive, but he's he works in advertising. He's an ad. Oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, three interesting stats just for Weird House Cinema here. This is our second Jack Arnold picture. This is our second Richard Matheson screenplay, and it's actually our second miniaturization film. Uh, we previously discussed 1940s Dr. Cyclops. Which, uh, Dr. Cyclops also had really excellent special effects for the time. That was a great-looking movie, though I think this one is a lot more interesting in terms of the characters. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other Jack Arnold movie was Tarantula, which was not nearly as good as this, but was a lot of fun in, in that, that campier direction I was expecting uh, this time. What was the other Matheson movie? The other Madison picture was The Devil Rides Out. It was oh. it, he was adapting uh, someone else's novel, a, a Wheatley novel. Okay. Uh, in this picture, he adapts his own novel. Simon, I'd rather see you dead than dabbling with shrink mist. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and listen to the trailer, some trailer audio here. This one's a lot of fun, and I love how this one begins with The Incredible Shrinking Man.
Shrinking Man. You are getting smaller. There's no medical precedent for what's happening to you. I, I simply know that you're getting smaller. I want you to start thinking about us, our marriage. Some awful things might happen. As long as you've got this wedding ring on, you've got me. This is Orson Welles speaking. I have 45 seconds to tell you about something I think you'll remember the longest day you live. It's about a man named Scott Carey. A few months ago, he was six feet, two inches tall and weighed 190 pounds. Today, he's two inches tall and you can hold him in the palm of your hand. Now he lives in a world where he must fight for his life, a world where a friendly house cat is a predatory monster. Incredible, because it's almost beyond imagining. Incredible, because every hour he gets smaller and smaller. Incredible, because every moment the terror mounts. A note before we keep going, if you want to watch this as well, uh, we watched it on the excellent Criterion Collection disc, which features a great 4K digital restoration of the film itself and a load of great extras. I didn't get to go through all the extras, but I went through some of them, and they're, they're pretty great. Um, highly recommend this edition. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, rented the blue from Videodrome. It's also available for digital rental on most platforms. All right. Well, let's start talking a little bit about the, the people involved here. Some of these are people we've covered before, in which case I'm going to try and cover them just a, a little a little differently than before but uh yeah at the top of the picture we have jack arnold the director who lived 1912 through 1992 again this is our, our second jack arnold film following 1955's tarantula he learned cinematography and filmmaking under robert j flaherty while serving in the u.s military during world war ii and following the war started the promotional films company with lee goldman he directed the 1948 short Chicken of Tomorrow. Uh, this one is a rift on Mystery Science Theater 3000. So I've seen this one many times, but I did not know until this week that it was a Jack Arnold production. Uh, I have never seen this in full and I haven't seen it rift, but I was skipping around in the link you sent me. And there are parts where like it shows uh, maps and the, the map, seg- the animated map segments reminded me of the World War II propaganda films that Walt Disney made, like Victory Through mm-hmm. Air Power. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense given like where he came out of, where he learned his craft. And in 1950, he directed the International Ladies Garment Workers Union documentary With These Hands, which was nominated for an Oscar. This immediately caught my eye because, uh, okay, so this is an independent promotional film for the uh, the ILGWU, um, mm-hmm. but... The International Ladies Garment Workers Union is also the subject of my longtime favorite commercial that appears on many tapes of the Star Wars holiday special where they sing the union song. <laughs> you know, you know the one I'm talking about. I they know all, the one. Yeah. In. yeah da, 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 da. It's, it's great. Uh, it's tied for my favorite with uh, Tobor, of course. You know, our uh, our uh, coworker, Annie Reese, really wants to come on the show and discuss about the Star Wars holiday special this year. Uh, she, has, she has made it known. Oh, Annie and I have discussed the the International Ladies Garment Workers Union <laughs> commercial and Tobor, the telesonic robot, a number of times. 
So we can maybe when she does come, we can do a, a full ranking of all the holiday special commercials. <laughs> Sounds good. So uh, anyway, with these hands was uh, was a hit. Didn't win the Oscar, but was nominated. And this enough was enough to catch the attention of Universal Studios. So they signed Jack Arnold on as one of their directors. So I mentioned there's a great uh, there's some great extras on that Criterion Collection disc, and there's a great about an hour long bio about Arnold's career. And one of the things that they stress in it is that when you got hired by a major film studio as a director during this period, you were expected to deliver on whatever they needed. So a studio like Universal, they had to bust out the full menu of films. You know, it wasn't just the uh, the pricey specials. They also had to have the appetizers. You know, they had to have the crowd pleasers. So, you know, they had their prestige titles all the way down to the genre dregs. And certainly in this time, that's where you would find your science fiction. So if you are a studio-employed director like Jack Arnold at this time, you're probably not doing a lot of what many people probably imagine directors doing today, which is like striking out on their own with like a script that they're really excited about and then finding funding for that and putting together a production. Uh, it's a lot more kind of like work for hire. Like the studio says, here's the movie you're making. Yeah, yeah. They might assign you a Western, a horror, a sci-fi film, uh, you name it. And it was up to you to make it work and deliver. Um, um, I guess this, this was referenced uh, a good bit in uh, the Coen Brothers film, um, the title eluding me at the moment, Wrestling Pictures. Oh, Barton Fink. Barton Fink, yes. Uh, he was a, a writer in that, he in a that writer, uh, yes. but he was very much in the, in the studio system and was expected to deliver what they needed. He was going to write for Wallace Beery or something. Yeah. <laughs> so Arnold comes aboard there at Universal, and the first thing they give him is 1953's Girls in the Night. This is a troubled youth picture with, with fittingly... Um, um, aged youths, you know, that are clearly like in their their thirties or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but he apparently did well with it, and he was handed "It Came from Outer Space," which ultimately came out the same year. Now, I haven't seen "It Came from Outer Space," but the way they were discussing it in this uh, this extra made it sound uh, like something we might want to check out sometime because it was based on a story treatment from Ray Bradbury. Mm. And it was pretty ambitious and ahead of its time in many ways. So it's one of these films where the aliens are not villainous, but merely just difficult to understand. Um, And also, this is pretty crazy, too. You were actually never meant to see the aliens. And this is the way they initially shot the picture and approached the picture. It wasn't until the, the studio basically had some time to think about this and they're like look we can't put nothing on a poster we need to put a monster (laughs) on the poster this is a monster movie gosh darn it Uh so they ended up having to compromise and actually came up with like a pretty interesting looking creature to to fit in there and uh, still even though they had to compromise the results were supposed to be pretty good oh i would be absolutely game to talk about this one so that film was a hit and for a long stretch it kind of cemented arnold's place as their sci-fi guy you know and this was a solid position even though you're further down the ranks in 50s hollywood Mm -hmm. his follow-up uh certainly when we look back on jack arnold's pictures like this is maybe the one that made the biggest impact on popular culture uh 1954's creature from the black lagoon ah the creature from which of course becomes one of the, the the pantheon of universal monsters the big ones you know about yeah, yeah. And, and it really just strikes through to uh, the public horror consciousness, uh, becomes this enduring pop culture figure and was a huge hit at the time. So huge that it actually inspired a sequel, which wasn't like the normal, like nowadays we just think, you know, that's what you assume is going to happen. If there's not a sequel, then I guess the first one wasn't successful, but it wasn't a given back in the day. Uh, so he ended up doing the sequel. Um 
which uh, is not as good. Or I don't know. It's hard to to really judge the creature films because the first one is it's it's both mostly about just how good that creature suit looks. Yeah, the first one I think of as wonderfully uh, atmospheric and and having that great monster in it, but I. I've seen it several times and I really couldn't tell you anything about the human characters. I don't recall at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just remember one... the humans come off as jerks. Like they come <laughs> to where the creature lives and they start shooting at him and stuff. They're like, he's not attacking cities or anything. He's just hanging out in a bog or uh, mm-hmm. in a lake somewhere in the jungle and they come to him. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to digest that. And then the second one, they kind of rehash it, except they make the suit look goofy, like the eyes look goofy in the second one. Yeah. And then the third one is more disturbing. Um, and perhaps there's a lot to talk about with the third one, but also it's just, it's not as fun as the first one by yeah. any stretch. So uh, anyway, it was a huge hit. Arnold comes back with Tarantula, which we've talked about on the show. And then in 1957, he pulls off easily his greatest achievement in sci-fi cinema, The Incredible Shrinking Man. Uh, It's, like we've been saying, it's really the total package. A big-budget effects movie for the time and for the genre with a great, intelligent script built on solid performances. This wouldn't be his last sci-fi film, but outside of the sheer popularity of the creature itself, from Creature from the Black Lagoon, this one is kind of his career-defining film. Okay, now we also... uh talked about how this film benefits from some excellent writing by Richard Matheson. That's right. Uh, Richard Matheson lived 1926 through 2013. American writer who's um, in, in large part, I think, best remembered for his 1954 novel, I Am Legend, um, but for a few different reasons. Like some people just are really fond of the book, and I I love the book. I haven't read it in many years, but I've, uh, I, I read it a couple of times and loved it. Uh, but, of course, it became the basis for, I think, three different film adaptations. 64 is The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price. 1971 is The Omega Man, starring Chuck Heston. And then 2007's I Am Legend, starring Will Smith. Each one a very distinct, uh, very set-in-its-time adaptation of the source material. I got an idea. Someday we should do three weeks in a row where we <laughs> do all three of these movies. It could be fun. It could be, uh, we could learn a lot about ourselves, I think. Yeah, uh, but but he was this wasn't a, a one trick pony. Uh, he also wrote the excellent haunted house novel Hell House, the thriller Duel, uh, The Shrinking Man. All of these were adapted into films. Uh, Duel by young Steven Spielberg. Some other books he had that were adapted included What Dreams May Come and A Stir of Echoes. So in this case, he wrote a screenplay for this movie based on a novel he had published uh, just the previous year. I think right. Yeah, it was still hot, still hot. Yeah. Um, he also wrote a lot of TV, including 16 episodes of the original Twilight Zone, including such episodes as Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. He also wrote for such shows as Night Gallery, the original Star Trek, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, and Thriller. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. 
Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So as, we, as we've been discussing, yeah, Incredible Shrinking Man, based on The Shrinking Man, the novel, and, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's not just about the fantastic scenario of gradual miniaturization, but it is this kind of analysis and rumination on masculine ideals in middle-class America of the time. Um, the, the book and this movie would also serve as inspiration for The Incredible Shrinking Woman in 1981. that was scripted by Jane uh, Wagner, and I believe that was directed by Joel Schumacher. Oh, okay. I personally haven't seen it, but I, I, I hear it's good, it, and it's a, a great idea, you know, to take this uh, older um, movie that is all about um, like masculine miniaturization and what does that mean uh, if you um, if you approach it uh, from a feminine perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just looked it up. Is Lily Tomlin is the, is oh, the main character? Great. She's our shrinker. Yeah, our shrunken man in this film, however, uh, playing the character Scott Carey is the actor Grant Williams, who lived 1931 through 1985. Williams was a versatile American actor of stage, TV, and screen. It's uh, noted in the Criterion Collection edition that that his casting in this film was very much that of an an ascendant talent. 
who could play a relatable character, as opposed to what you sometimes got in genre films of the day, some sort of pure Hollywood actor type who's kind of you know square jawed guy who's sort of fallen down the ladder of success and winds up in your B picture or your genre picture. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, Grant, Grant Williams does a really, I think, a great job. And it's very tremendous, a very sort of isolated, uh, self-reflective kind of performance. This guy had a little bit less of the stink of Westerns than a lot mm-hmm. of uh, 50s sci-fi movie protagonists do. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Like you, you look at him and you, you don't instantly think, when's this guy going to punch somebody? Yeah. So Williams had had smaller roles in TV and film before this. Uh, but what really made him stand out was a bit performance in the 1956 film, a Rock Hudson picture titled Written on the Wind. Uh, it's, uh, I think he's like a gas station attendant in it or something. Not a very big part, but it made an impact. And yeah, The Incredible Shrinking Man is a great showcase for his acting talents uh, and uh, allows him to really stand out. Uh, he followed this up with the lead role in The Monolith Monsters, an interesting looking picture from one of the writers of Tarantula. And we talked about that a bit in our Tarantula episode, though I, I have not seen it. Yeah, I've eyed Monolith Monsters for uh, for Weird House before. Yeah, because that one, like the basic idea is, uh, let's do uh, you know a 50s monster movie, but the monsters are geology. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a terrible idea, so it's like I have to I have to look and see, you know. Yeah. Or it sounds it, like it an idea that the studio might have stumbled over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, Williams uh, yeah, found some success here. Then he moved from Universal to Warner Brothers in '59. He did various TV and film roles after that. Some of the standouts include 1960s The Leech Woman. This is one that was also featured on Mystery Science Theater. This is the one that has a great line from the The Leech Woman, where she says, "You will never escape me. You are the one in my dreams of blood." Mm. Great line. I, How I romantic! It's why well, it's not supposed to be. Romantic, exactly. But anyway, he was also in 63's PT 109, 1971's Brain of Blood, and 1976's Doomsday Machine. He did 50 episodes of TV's Hawaiian Eye, and he pops up in one episode of the original The Outer Limits. Uh, he also did one episode of The Munsters. Oh. Is he a, uh, a boyfriend that Marilyn Munster brings home and then he gets scared and <laughs> runs away? And they said, oh, you did it again. One assumes, yes. <laughs> All right, so he's the—I mean—he's the centerpiece in this in this picture. Most of your screen time is spent with him, but we also have a major character in Louise Carey, uh, his wife, played by Randy Stewart, who lived 1924 through 1996. She was an actor in numerous popular movies of the 40s and 50s, like late 40s and then the 50s, uh, and later a frequent TV player. She was a supporting player in Howard Hawks' I Was a Male War Bride from 1949, All About Eve from 1950, and she did a lot of TV and westerns leading into The Incredible Shrinking Man, and afterwards it was mostly TV westerns and police shows until the mid-1970s. Now there's another female character in this that we'll, we'll discuss when we get more into the plot. This is a character named Clarice, played by April Kent, who lived 1935 through 1998. Uh, She has only six film credits to her name. She was the daughter of noted actor June Havoc, who lived 1912 through 2010, and was niece of the legendary burlesque dancer Gypsy Rose Lee, who lived Mm. 1911 through 1970. She's only in a couple of scenes, but she's very good. She's kind of the soul of the movie in a way. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, The Shrinking Man also has a brother named Charlie, uh, Charlie is played by Paul Langton, who lived 1913 through 1980, a TV and film actor who appeared on a couple episodes of The Twilight Zones, a 1954 Yeti 
movie called The Snow Creature and 1958's It, The Terror from Beyond Space, which I've, I've heard great things about. That one might be one to look at in the future. This guy is your square jaw. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he plays just kind of like, he's like a business executive. Uh, I don't remember him being super notable. No. But you know who is notable? Oh, my God. Uh, a feline actor. We don't get to talk about feline actors on Weird House Cinema, but Orangey, uh, the cat, plays Butch the cat. Orangey, not super creative name. <laughs> Butch, also kind of a strange name for a cat, it seems to me. I don't know why. I don't know. I think Butch could work for a, a rough-and-tumble tomcat, you know, maybe an indoor-outdoor cat that shows up uh, bleeding from a lot of fights, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but Orangey, um, Orangey is very much the sort of name that a, <laughs> that, that a toddler uh, gives a stuffed cat. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but Orangey, wow, what a presence in this film. And not just in the attack scene. There are there are some interesting moments from before that that, that sort of ride the line between cute and ominous, uh, especially because you sort of sense what may be coming. There are basically two ways of looking at Orangey um, as, a, as a career actor in Hollywood. Either this is one cat, and I tend to maybe... I want to side with that because that sound, it's, it's a better story that way. But it's also possible that this was more than one cat that was marketed as orangey to Hollywood. Uh, so I'm probably going to lean more into the idea of this being an individual cat that lived 1950 through 1967. Because orangey had star power. Orangey was a rare male marmalade tabby cat owned and trained by the famous Hollywood animal handler Frank Inn. Inn's other animals included the dogs of the Benji franchise. Whoa. Yeah, and Orangey uh, is uh, yeah, a true Hollywood legend and the only two-time winner of the Patsy Award. That's Picture Animal Top Star of the Year, which the American Humane Association put on. What do you think Orangey's reward was when he won this prize? Did you get like three whole cans of tuna to himself just face down so. in the can? I would hope so. <laughs> Uh, so w- what pictures was Orangey in? Well, between 1951 and 1965, Orangey was in Rhubarb, which I think is about a cat that owns a baseball team or something. Um, <laughs> this Island Earth, oh. The Incredible Shrinking Man, obviously, The Matchmaker, The Diary of Anne Frank, um, plays a cat that almost gives up Anne Frank's family to the Nazis. Oh, no. Um, visit to a Small Planet, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Okay. Gidget, The Comedy of Terrors, and The Village of the Giants. Oh, that's a Mr. Big movie. Yeah. On the small screen, he acted in such shows as Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Beverly Hillbillies, My Favorite Martian, Mission Impossible, and the old Batman TV series. Was he a villain on Batman called Orangey? I, I don't know. Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes you just need a cat for a small part of the set. Sometimes you need a cat to try and eat your hero. So it, it varies what you're going to bring Orangey in for. But Orangey got to work with a, a number of actors. And these are actors that he, that he actually shared scenes with. Audrey Hepburn, Basil Rathbone, Boris Karloff, Vincent Price, Peter Lorre. Amazing. Yeah. You know all of these actors petted this cat. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's there's scenes of like Vincent Price holding Orangey. There's a I, uh, there's a you can see screenshots of like Boris Karloff pretending to be dead while Orangey is on his chest. So you know, sometimes he's right up in there. Of all those actors, who do you think gives the best pets? Mm, uh, Vincent Price, right? Oh yeah, the Vincent Price belly rubs are superb. 
Now, RNG was apparently not the nicest cat, uh, as is sometimes <laughs> the case with human actors. Uh, he often lashed out at his co-stars. He might bite them or scratch them. Um, yeah. He might leave the set for no apparent reason, shutting down the production, which, again, some human actors may do this from time to time. Uh, but Play he was hardball, RNG. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I can imagine RNG only... Uh, communicating with the director via post-it notes, uh-huh. that sort of thing. But um, but he was also considered like the best. And I guess you're also it's basically I mean you're hiring Frank N for his um, his animals. And one of the things about Orangey is that Orangey was not as prone to wandering off the set. Uh, cats, as many filmmakers have testified to over the years, are harder to work with than dogs. It's harder to convince them to do what you need them to do for a given shot or sequence. Orangey was. Marlon Brando filming the Island of Dr. Moreau. Just <laughs> <laughs> basically, yeah. Um, I remember seeing some uh, extras where the Coen brothers were talking about filming with a cat on uh, what was it, the, the Lewin Davis, the Lewin Davis movie, the, the folk singer movie? Inside, Inside Lewin Davis, Davis. Yeah. 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 There's a, a cat that plays a prominent role in the plot, and they were like, it was so hard to shoot with this cat. We'll never make a film with a cat again. Oh, that makes sense. But you, but that kind of comes through in the movie because the point of the cat is that, like, he, he's trying to keep it from getting away, I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Some other uh, bit players in this. Um, so Raymond Bailey, who lived 1904 through 1980, plays one of two doctors that our, our hero goes to, our main character goes to. Um, we've talked about him before because he was in Tarantula. He played a character with the name of Townsend. Hmm. And um, he's probably best remembered for playing Mr. Drysdale on the Beverly Hillbillies from 1963 through 1971. Oh, is this the first doctor that that uh, dude goes to? This is the this is not the skinnier doctor. This is the other doctor. So this might be the later doctor. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. Mr. Drysdale. OK. Yeah. Later doctor. Who was okay. he in Tarantula? I don't, I don't remember who Townsend was. It's it's hard to remember anyone other than um, our two main characters, the Tarantula and Clint Eastwood in that movie. Yeah. Oh, well, then, of course, um, uh, our, our, our scientist, um, Leo G. Carroll, with the mutated face, yes. Right. There are multiple memorable characters, but Raymond Bailey's not one of them. Okay, I think uh, I think Raymond Bailey played the small town doctor in Tarantula who's arguing with John Agar about who died of what reason yes i believe so yeah now the other doctor in this is played by william shallert who lived 1922 through 2016 american actor with a very long career stretching from 1947 through 2014 that's eight decades and 388 tv and film credits on imdb Uh, one-time president of the screen actors guild he also played a doctor in joe dante's inner space from 1987 which is fun because it's another miniaturization film yeah and I, and i think dante used him a few different times like he shows up in um, in gremlins for example uh, but other film credits include singing in the rain and the heat of the night written on the wind which we talked about uh, already mm-hmm. them the forbin project mighty joe young the man from planet x the monolith monsters gog and tobor the great oh which we covered just uh just a few months ago yeah yeah so i'm just looking at this relationship and thinking joe dante i think is very fond of making movies that call back to movies he saw when he was a kid so i'd be Mm -hmm. surprised if he made a shrink movie that has this guy in it who is in another famous shrink movie from a couple of decades earlier that that can't be an accident oh no there are no accidents with uh with casting like that from from dante all right, finally, when it comes to the music, this is one of those films where there's 
in the the credits there's no like credited uh you know score composed by uh they credit the main trumpet player but um there are like four uncredited names on the studio soundtrack when you look it up in the databases suffice to say that it's a very traditional and melodramatic score for the most part um not the kind of thing that i would ever listened to in isolation, but it works really well in this film, providing, I think, a mostly serious musical framework for the visuals. Uh, yeah, I thought there were parts here where the the musical score was more distinctive than most uh, movies of this time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And cer- certainly towards the end. Yeah. Because, like, I, I recall thinking with the opening credits uh, that the, I was like, what does this music remind me of? And it, obviously it wasn't this, but I realized it reminded me of Gershwin. Like it hmm. kind of sounds like the, uh, it had this blooming trumpet motif that reminded me of Rhapsody in Blue. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the, the trumpet soloist who is credited in the, the credits was Ray Anthony, born 1922. And as of this recording, the last surviving member of the Glenn Miller Orchestra. Hmm. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. 
As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, you ready to discuss the plot? Oh, let's get into it. So in the opening credits, while this music plays, we see a, a blank white silhouette of a man on a black background. Uh, again, there's this this horn-heavy music playing. And I, I really like the sort of uh, abstract imagery of the credits because we start by just zooming toward a jagged, irregular white shape in the distance. So it's like a black background and a white shape and you're thinking what is it is this some kind of like cloud maybe or is it a large crystal and eventually you realize that it is sunlight you are zooming through a cave to the mouth of the cave out of the dark cave into the daylight Mm. and so that growing white object in the distance was the mouth of the cave and the light outside Um, And so when we come out, we see the ocean, there are waves breaking, birds, a boat rocking in the tide, and there begins narration. And I'm going to be a little harsh here because overall, I think this is a fantastic movie. I think it has a really just flat on its face opener. Not good. Not good (laughs) opening lines. It starts uh, with the narration saying, The strange, almost unbelievable story of Robert Scott Carey began on a very ordinary summer day. I know this story better than anyone because I am Robert Scott Carey. (laughs) Why would you phrase it that way? So it's like some kind of reveal, but you're only two sentences in. You're not going to be blowing anybody's mind with a twist at this point. Uh, Like, would people be saying, oh, whoa, the narrator who just now started talking is also the guy he's talking about? Yeah. I mean, like Herman Melville does it right off the, the bat, right? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but um, I know what you mean. Yeah, this kind of struck me as being maybe something I haven't read the original novel, but maybe this is kind of um, tightly bound to the original novel. Yeah, maybe works um, better on the page, that sort of thing. So yeah, it's 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 a great script, but this is not a good opener. You could have come up with something better. Anyway, so uh, in the beginning, we see a man, presumably Robert Scott Carey from the narration, and a a woman. We find out this is uh, his wife, Louise, and they're lounging side by side in the sun on the bow of a boat. And uh, the situation is, they reveal, they've been married for six years. They are on vacation. The boat belongs to Robert Scott Carey's brother. Robert Scott Carey needs to get beer in him, and he yearns for Louise to retrieve the beer on his behalf, and Louise desireth not to bring him the beer and tells him he should fetch his own beer. This was a a very simple scene, uh, but I thought it was very good, very well acted. Uh, it, It comes off playful, but it also in some ways lays the groundwork for the developments in their relationship to come, the problems that will emerge. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And one other thing, and this took me a little bit to break down about this scene, but, okay, these two char- characters are wearing bathing suits, uh, you know, 1950s bathing suits that um, are distinct. They would look a, a little old-fashioned today, but they're not that different from what uh, a couple might wear on a boat today. And I, for some reason, I thought this made, this made them feel a little more relatable in this scene to modern audiences, because unlike many other scenes in the in the movie, they're not wearing those 1950s domestic uniforms, you know, the sort of standard dress of a, of a you know, a married middle class couple in 1950s America that you see in every other film. Right. Leave it to Beaver wearing a coat and tie while sitting on the couch at home. Yeah. 
And they're, again, they're also being very human and relatable in this scene. And they're not, because there are plenty of films from this time period in which you have people in bathing suits. So it's not just the bathing suit, yeah. but so many of those sequences are people being hip in bathing suits. And these, these characters are being real. Yeah, they're being playful and their relationship is sweet. So like the, they playfully argue about this, but eventually Louise is like, okay, I'll get him a beer. I think he promises her something. And he's anyway, going to make dinner. Yeah. He's going to make dinner. Yeah. Um, so she goes down into the cabin to get him a beer. And uh, as soon as she disappears down below, Robert Scott Carey here witnesses a bizarre sight. There is an ominous white cloud of vapor billowing rapidly in his direction over the surface of the water. And uh, the this is this, totally unexplained. It's not like one of those scenes in a movie where, you know, you've heard already a, a radio announcement in the background that says, like, a cloud of vapor escaped from a chemical transport is blah, blah, blah. You have, just have no idea what this is. Yeah, I, and I love how, how unexplained it is because it could... It, it almost takes on the feeling of uh, vision or prophecy, though, of course, for the context of the film, we are to assume this is something that actually does happen to him. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I like how it um, the, the way that it is like on the horizon, the way the film, the, the scene is shot, too, with uh, we're 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 viewing him uh, back turned to the camera, the, the cloud in the distance moving ever closer. It ends up taking on a kind of temporal quality to it you know like the mm. thing that is approaching is not only like a an actual physical sci-fi threat in the scene but it also represents like the the uncertainty of the future uh yeah. the known and unknown challenges of the future it's coming on faster than he can react and he can't see through it to what's on the other side yeah so before he really has time to understand what's happening the cloud of vapor overtakes the boat and it envelops him and then it just blows on by and so it's it's gone before Louise even emerges from down below but it leaves Scott here covered in what looks like glitter This is probably a good time to mention for anyone who's purely listening to this and hasn't seen this is a black and white film Oh so, yeah. so the glitter the, the glitter you can still laugh at it uh by all means but uh, it is at least in black and white and not like sparkling purple or anything. So we cut from here to six months later, and it's a pleasant domestic scene. Uh, Louise is is at their home calling out to a cat to give him some milk. This is the first time we meet Orangey or Butch in the movie. Uh, and as soon as I saw this, I was like, oh, everybody here is going to recognize a Chekhov's cat in a shrink movie when they see it. Yeah, and I think the cat was prominently featured in promotional material. So I think a lot of the original audience saw this coming as well. And actually, I think the movie, in a smart way, plays into that. Because in, instead of trying to keep it secret, like, oh, you know, there's going to be a big twist that, like, the cat attacks him. It plays up the fact that the cat is going to be a threat. I think by, in a very subtle way, a few times after uh, Scott starts shrinking, having these little moments where like the cat does something cute, but it's photographed in a way that could be interpreted as a little bit unnerving. Mm, yeah. Anyway, so we go into the house and it's, you know, the kitchen looks like the, I love Lucy kitchen, the old school refrigerator with round edges. It's, it's that kind of mid century home. Uh, Scott's getting dressed and he's running into a problem. It seems like none of his clothes fit anymore. They're all too big. And he even thinks Louise might've picked up the wrong bag at the dry cleaners. Uh, and he's eating less than he used to. He has one egg for breakfast instead of two. 
So he goes to the doctor to get this checked out, and the doctor confirms that he is not only 10 pounds lighter than he used to be, he measures uh, Scott's height, and Scott's like, that doesn't make sense. That's several inches shorter than I used to be. How's that supposed to happen? Hmm. But uh, this scene was good because the doctor has very reasonable things to say. So he attributes the weight loss to stress, and then he doubts that Scott is actually getting shorter. He says, you know, like he brings real knowledge that makes a lot of sense. He argues that, well, maybe your previous height measurements, you know, you, you only have a couple of sources for that. That was a couple of physicals over the last many years. Those might have been early in the morning when we're actually a bit taller than we are later in the day, which is true due to um, compression of the spine mm-hmm. from being upright throughout the day. Generally, you lose, uh, you know, some small but but real amount of height. And uh, and maybe there was just uh, errors on top of that. So that, that, that seems possible. And back home, Scott seems preoccupied after this uh, doctor visit. Louise asks him, uh, "What? hey, what did Charlie, that's referring to his brother, what did Charlie think about your idea for a newspaper ad? So Scott, we learn, is an ad man. Uh, what is the, it's not a wheel, it's a carousel of shrinking down to the size of an atom? <laughs> I don't know. We'll keep that in mind as we go yeah. on. Uh, but the, they start putting several lines of evidence together. So it's undeniable that he's getting smaller every day because uh, Louise used to have to like stand up on her toes to kiss him. And now she doesn't. And this kind of foreshadows the way uh, the, this, the, the premise of the movie comes as an injury to his sense of manhood. Yeah. And also that it's he's 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 thinking he's shorter just in large part because things are changing. His relationship to things are changing. So one of the great things about this, the, the way the, the, the picture treats this shrinking, which again is, is very much a sci-fi miniaturization gimmick, but uh, they're always playing at least a little bit with the metaphorical nature of this. Like, what does it mean that you are changing in relation to the rest of the world and how many things in the modern life could that be compared to? Yeah, the story is rich with metaphors in that way. So he he eventually he goes back to the doctor, and uh, it turns out there's no mistaking it. They do x-rays to confirm that Scott is definitely actually shrinking, uh, and mm-hmm. the doctor sends him off to a special medical research institute in California to discover the cause of his condition and hopefully to cure it. They do a bazillion different kinds of tests, shown in what I thought was a very effective montage. It almost reminded me of the the freaky, alienating montage of medical tests in The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah, they're doing a number of things. He's describing some of them in the, the narration, but yeah, they're seeing, uh, they're looking all inside him. They're, they're looking at all these test results, just trying, uh, mostly in vain, to understand like what's happening and what can we do to treat it. Eventually, they come up with a diagnosis. They figure out what's going on. They say, quote, it's a rearrangement of the molecular structure of the cells in your body. And, you know, that's a funny phrase when you pull it out of context here, but I'm going to give this movie a lot of credit. It does a very good job of selling its uh, sci-tech babble. Yeah, yeah. In the scene, you you believe it. And more to the, the point, you you can tell that um, our main character believes it. Like, and he's finding comfort in the fact that, okay, they figured it out. Now we can move on to the next thing. The modern world can fix this. Yeah. And uh, and they even put together like what was probably the cause. They uh, they think that it was sort of a two stage uh, chain of causes. One was that he was recently exposed to an, an insecticide 
which he remembers a case of like being around uh, uh, pest control people spraying. But then before that, they were like, have you ever been exposed to any radioactivity? Because that in combination with the insecticide did something. And then he remembers finally the boat, the mist, the mist. And they determine he might just keep shrinking. Uh, they don't know what to do about it yet. And so there's a discussion between Scott and Louise where he, he becomes quickly quite fatalistic about it. You know, this may kill him or make him no longer the man she married, in which case he says, well, there will be limitations on her obligations to him. And she she poo-poos this. She tells him she still loves him. But right in the middle of the scene, his wedding ring falls off of his finger onto the floor of the car. Yeah, that, that may have been a little over the top, but uh, I think that's one of the really fun things about this picture is that there's still moments like that that are a little overly dramatic and you can you can laugh at, but your laughter doesn't doesn't really take you out, you know. Well, there's another one that comes up. So uh, we more time passes and there's a scene where we meet Scott's brother, Charlie, and you see uh, Charlie and uh, Louise in like a living room together and Charlie's just kind of like talking into a chair that appears to be empty and he's saying you know his business has turned uh, things have gone bad at the plant his income is gone uh, so he's running out of ways to help support uh, uh, Louise and Scott but he does know of another way to bring in money which is that reporters are offering to pay for the story they've heard the rumors about the rumors of the incredible shrinking man so charlie's like hey what if we just take the money and we you know let you become an object of media fixation mm. And then there's a reveal, there's a reverse shot, and we see that Charlie has been speaking into this chair the whole time, and we finally see Scott in the chair, but now he is shrunken to the size where, like, he doesn't, you know, his head doesn't reach above the cushion and his feet don't dangle below the cushion. Uh, he's, it seems like he's about three feet tall here. Yeah, it's, this is a, this is, a, I guess, our first, um, look at some of these fantastic sets they put together uh, to utilize with other, other effects uh, methods uh, in order to make it look like he's smaller. You know, in this case, it's like a giant chair. Uh, but, uh, but this reveal is also quite funny. It's something about the, the really dramatic music that hits when we see him there. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't know to what extent it was meant to be funny, but like I'm saying, you can, you can laugh at moments like that in the film and it, it doesn't really detach you from the serious nature of the film as well. I agree. I, I don't think it was meant to be funny at all, but, and it is kind of funny, but I think that's just a, uh, I don't know, time and film convention thing. And it, it, the movie still works. Yeah. Now there was another thing I was wondering about though, and this is sort of getting into the unspoken themes of this movie. A lot of what's interesting about it is unspoken, but implied. The thing is that, you know, Scott doesn't have a job anymore. So he's, uh, he's having to get support from his brother and ultimately support from these, you know, these media vultures who want to who want to make a buck off his story. But I was thinking, why doesn't Scott have a job anymore? They say he works in advertising and obviously like his shrinking would not interfere with his ability to come up with ideas for advertisements like he could still pitch ideas for, you know, magazine spreads about how cigarettes are good for you. Uh, but I, I guess maybe it's implying that he lost his job because it is something about like, uh, like embarrassment or, or fear of how he'd be perceived or the way people would treat him. Uh, just the idea that like, he can't go out to the workplace and be seen like this. 
Yeah, I think I think to a large extent that's that's part of it, right? Like this fear of being ostracized for now being different, for not fitting in, for not um, uh, you know for, for not fitting the the sort of template for uh, for what it meant to be a man anymore in that time mm. because he's he's physically reduced, he's literally reduced. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know. It's like you, I don't know exactly what his job consisted of, but I instantly come back to Mad Men, you know, and all the various schmoozing and socializing that the, our various characters, professional characters in that uh, show have to do. And he just like, he can't do it anymore. How's he going to go and drink and eat oysters with, uh, with, with other businessmen at lunch if he's now three feet tall? Yeah. So faced with no other options, Scott decides, okay, I will become a media sensation. And that's what they do. They apparently get some money out of this, but it leads to people like reporters and just gawkers gathering outside the house, hoping to get a glimpse of him. Uh, and the special effects really start to be revealed here. Like Scott is shown in an extremely convincing set of the home living room where the couch cushions are taller than him and the cat comes up to his waist and so forth. And it looks great. Yeah, he's he's not so small that the cat will attack him yet, um, yeah. which I don't know, depending on your experience with your cat uh, at home, listeners, you may have a different take on all this. I know that I'm a full size human being. And my cat attacks my feet on an almost daily, uh, <laughs> daily level. Um, it's like daily assaults. Um, daily, I'm hunted for sport by this creature uh, that I, I feed and care for. Um, so I don't think I would have to get much smaller to, uh, to experience worse treatment by my own cat. Well, we'll have to uh, compare the, the movie's depiction of cat feline viciousness uh, to to the reality that you may have experienced in a little bit here. Okay. <laughs> but also in the scene, we get the first glimpse of Scott's real anguish about what's going on. He's, you know, obviously somebody who was going through a medical situation like this would be afraid, but Scott is also an important aspect of how, how this works is that he he's humiliated. He feels humiliated by how people see him. Of course, he's afraid of what he'll become. And he turns this into uh, anger. Like he lashes out in anger at Louise for no good reason, though he does feel remorse about this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, this is some of the stuff that kind of works nicely with what we see of of their healthier relationship earlier on, you know, there's this kind of, you know, subtle, playful teasing there. But, but at this point, like their, their, you know, their relationship is a little more out of more than a little bit out of whack uh, uh, due to his condition and the way he's handling his condition and the way he's taking it out on her. We also learn here that he's writing a book about his experience. And this seems to be sort of where the, the narration, the voiceover narration is coming in, like the, uh, it's sort of based on the thoughts he's writing in his memoir, I think. Yeah, and this is where we got it. We get, you know, all of this um, uh, reflective, uh, uh, analytical uh, content where he's, you know, thinking on about his anger. He's thinking about the way he's processing everything and beginning to to tease it apart to the best of his ability. Yeah, and through this narration, we learn that Scott just wants he wants to hide. He wants to get away to somewhere where nobody can find him, nobody can know about him. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the doctors eventually do come up with something. They come up with a treatment that they think will have about a 50% chance of curing him. And they do the injection and uh, they run some tests and it seems like it works. It does stop the shrinking, at least for now, uh, though they don't have any guarantee that he will recover to his original size. But it seems for a while like he's not going to get any smaller than he was, which they say is uh, stalled at uh, 36 inches, 52 pounds. And again, here there are scenes that uh, are what I was talking about earlier with the cat, uh, scenes where the camera, it seems to me, kind of meaningfully captures the cat. There's no direct indication yet that the cat will be any kind of threat, but there are these little cuddles and meows that are perfectly balanced between cute and kind of ominous. Mm. Now, ultimately, in his search for relief from his hopelessness and his emasculation, Scott leaves the house one night. He just like leaves. He goes out walking. And uh, of course, uh, people stare at him as he walks by on the sidewalk. But he makes his way to a carnival in town 
where there is a there's a Barker advertising the freak show, which has all the usual performers. And there is like so the Barker is announcing uh, a dwarf actress named Tiny Tina. And watching all of this, it's it's very interesting. Like Scott has it's much of it is unspoken, but you can tell Scott is having this mix of, I think, self-pity and remorse. So he has the self-pity of realizing that people now would look at him with the same dehumanizing lens through which they, they see the people in the freak show. But I think it's also implied that, that he realizes, you know, before the radioactive mm-hmm. cloud, he would have been just like those people in the audience looking on the performers, people like tiny Tina as inhuman curiosities. Yeah. Yeah. The, this whole sequence here and, and what is about to come. Uh, I, I, I remember thinking this is exactly the sort of sequence that might feel um, like just filler in in another film about somebody going through some sort of a change. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think it, I, I, I think it has essentially been such filler in films, perhaps inspired by this uh, this sequence. Uh, but it really works here. It feels like it is uh, you know basically we're getting to kind of like the, the soul of the picture. And speaking of, this is where we're about to meet the character Clarice. So he goes into a nearby cafe across the street from the carnival, and he orders a coffee and sits by himself. And he is joined at his table by a woman named Clarice, who is also a, a dwarf performer. And uh, they they have an interesting conversation. Uh, she's very, very kind and uh, and very wise. And they, they talk about what's going on. She realizes who he is because his name's been in the news. So she understands his situation. And he starts sharing his fears and his angst about uh, living the way he is. And Clarice advises him, uh, to, you know, maybe just start by uh, to, to try to find a way forward just by thinking about the future. And there's a part where Scott says, what future in a world of giants? And Clarice says, I've lived with them all my life. Hmm. And I thought this was also a very interesting scene, like seeing people of uh, a typical size as as giants and like the turning of the tables this way was interesting because like the perspective is the perspective that the only thing potentially bothersome about her size would come from the behavior of the giants. And she just doesn't really concern herself with them and how they behave or what they think. Yeah. Yeah. Like they are, they're outsized uh, as opposed to just me being downsized. And she, she tells him, you know, the world can still be a wonderful place. The sky is as blue as it is for the giants. The friends are as warm. Yeah. And so this meeting with Clarice and her wisdom and her kindness that kind of revives Scott, and he 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 comes out of his uh, out of his depression. He throws himself back into writing. He becomes deeply absorbed in his memoir, uh, and that lasts for a while until we get to a terrible realization, which is he uh, realizes upon a meeting with Clarice that he is actually shrinking once again. That the the treatment he's been given by the doctors is no longer stalling the progression of his condition. Yeah, this is interesting because, yeah, because in that first sequence, it is noticeable that he's a little bit taller mm-hmm. uh, than her. And and so on one level, you're you, you kind of look at that and you think, well, how much of this is kind of like his his um, this, the, the remnants of that that masculine ego that like he's able to like build some of it up because it's kind of like on some level. Oh, finally, a woman that I'm I'm taller than so I can I can fall into some of that uh, that older thinking about the masculine roles in society and now that's gone like now he's clearly shorter uh, but then also you can you can take it at face value you can you can take it in any uh, additional direction of character depth or, or metaphor as well 
Yeah. Now, once again, a bunch of time passes. And so the next time we meet Scott, he's living in a dollhouse on the floor in the in the home. Oh, uh, yeah. And, this is a great sequence because yeah. they're in separate parts of the house. And at first, you don't know that he's gotten that small. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't quite realize. But then they come to speak to one another. And Louise just speaking in a normal voice, like her voice uh, hurts his ears. It's too loud. Mm-hmm. And he's yelling. And yeah. at first I didn't realize that he's yelling because he's so small. He has to yell everything in order for her to hear him. But it also reads the other way, too. Yes. And he so he reflects upon himself like he he essentially explains that the smaller he got, the more domineering and controlling and angry he became at Louise. Uh, you know, he felt he was no, no longer really himself. And I thought this was really interesting about showing this kind of, uh, you know, to, to, to generalize this weird sci-fi scenario into reality that like uh, fear and a sense of vulnerability creates anger and resentment and a desire to control other people. Yeah, absolutely. So it's because like he's so dependent on Louise now. He's like he's really controlling of her movements and stuff like she's you know wanting to go out to the store real quickly and he's like tell me where you're going you know when will you be back and and that sort of thing yeah yeah and so she goes to the store but uh something happens yeah the cat comes in i guess the cat has been he's they realize he's too small and the cat lives outside now or is you know stuck away in a room i don't know how they have it worked out but he's kept at a safe distance from the cat but the cat has snuck back into the house and has been left alone in the house while uh, she is at the store. Yeah. And so here's the famous scene that we alluded to earlier, the cat attack scene. I think within the context of the rest of the story, the scene is really frightening. The effects are very good. And the horror plays directly on the themes because the attack is not coming from something that was ever originally threatening to Scott. The mm-hmm. the attack is from something that was previously harmless but has become threatening because the relationship between them has changed. And uh, it kind of reminds me of the other scene where they talk about now seeing other people as giants. Uh, but, of course, at least, like, the giants can be spoken to and reasoned with. Like, the cat cannot be spoken to or reasoned with. It just no longer even recognizes Scott as human. He's just a small prey animal like any other. Yeah, like the relationship has shifted that far that yeah, it's just you're you're not who or what you were before. Now you are merely prey. And this, of course, this is exactly how it would go down with a cat. I, I think we all realize this. Yeah. Uh, even those of us who own cats and love cats, uh, if if you were this small, uh, your cat would destroy you. There's just no way around it. It's like that's what your cat is programmed to do. That's what your cat has evolved to do. And you have, if you are unfortunate enough to magically shrink this small, well, you have, you have fallen in line with its central hunting programming. In this scene, we, we get really the first hint of something that will take up most of the rest of the movie, which is interesting uh, problem-solving relationships between Scott and his environment. So when the cat is attacking him, he really has no method of self-defense, but he comes up with something clever. He pulls down on the cord of a lamp that's on a table above and manages to get it to tip over off of the side table and fall down, which frightens the cat away. Yeah, and he, he basically just, just runs for it. Now, yeah. this you know, the sequence is, is frightening. I love the image where the cat is creeping up on the dollhouse originally and then reaches its paw through and does the bat, bat, bat thing with the, the, the claw. Um, 
Now, I, I don't want to criticize Orangey's performance and the way that Orangey <laughs> chose to to perform this role and, you know, the way that uh, uh, Jack Arnold directed it and the way Matheson wrote it. But I did find that the, the cat is is hissing and snarling too much. I think any mm. of us that have been around cats hunting or pretending to hunt, it's a very, it's mostly a silent fare. I mean, sometimes you encounter that that weird chirping they do it birds outside the window, that sort of thing. But when the hunt is on, there's a silence to the cat. Um, you're going to have more of that. There's going to be that kind of butt wiggling thing they do where they're mm-hmm. getting ready to spring. And we don't see any of that uh, from uh, this performance uh, by Orangey. Uh, it still doesn't take away from the sequence but at all, but I was, I was thinking about this as I was watching it. Like, okay, it really would go like this. And also... Um, he takes a couple of swipes from uh, from Butch the cat in this sequence. Like Butch, uh, like bloodies him up a good bit. Mm-hmm. In reality, I think if you're that small, I don't think you would survive this encounter at all. Yeah. Uh, no matter how clever you were, there's just no denying just how brutal a, a cat that size relative to your own body would be. You would just be torn apart. You're, you're you might be played with a little bit, but you would be doomed. I totally agree. Yeah, the the predator prey relationship I think doesn't play out. Something's weird here, though. You could say maybe the cat's normal hunting instincts are a little bit disrupted because he is somewhat different than I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Something's going on. I I can think of one memory I have of a cat just hissing at something much smaller than it, and it was oh, at, yeah. uh, a cat. It was a cat hissing at a huge black spider. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, maybe, maybe it does work. I mean, cats, cats are weird. So, <laughs> I mean, the cat did not, did not hunt the spider. It was clearly threatened by it. Hmm. I guess that's also going to connect to something in the movie in a minute here. Uh, so anyway, Scott escapes to the basement. He goes down the, uh, the, uh, through the basement door and ends up falling a long way into a laundry hamper. And then Louise gets home she finds Butch the cat with like a torn piece of of uh, of Scott's uh, clothing that has blood on it and licking blood from his paws, and so she assumes that Butch the cat has eaten her husband. Yep, there's only one way to interpret the evidence. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on... 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So now Scott is trapped in the basement and Louise doesn't know he's there. She thinks he's dead. And he uh, he has to try to find his way out of the laundry hamper. He has to navigate the landscape of giant objects. He has to try to find a way to contact Louise and make her realize he's still alive. But he can't make it up the stairs and she can't hear him call out. Um, so he's just sort of like stuck here trying to deal with this, the landscape of the basement of the house. And once again, here, the, the effects and the sets are marvelous. They're excellent at making you feel the change in scale as genuine horror and a horror that has great verisimilitude. I, I had this sense like this is what it would be like to be several inches tall, mm-hmm. trapped in the basement of a mid-century American house. Yeah, yeah. Again, the prop work, the sets are just amazing uh, in this uh, in this whole sequence, and also the black and white. I mean, black and white. Uh, the the film's you know nicely shot throughout, but these basement sequences, especially, take they end up taking on this just like rich. Uh, you know, the, the 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 blacks are just so much darker and deeper uh, in these sequences. I thought it's just excellent. It's almost um, it's, it's almost like German expressionism or something. Mm. Yeah. In in the narration, he says, the cellar stretched before me like some vast primeval plain, empty of life, littered with the relics of a vanished race. No desert island castaway ever faced so bleak a prospect. But he's in his house. Yeah, yeah. But it's like he's, and this works in so many levels. You know, he's fallen into the underworld. He's fallen into the place you put things that are forgotten about, where where things that you forget about when they're working are found, like the uh, the hot water heater and so forth. Um, I also found it interesting. I read that that uh, Matheson wrote the novel in large part in a cellar, in a basement, mm. and would comment that you know, like he as he was writing it, he would just look up and look around him to sort of take in the the, the scene uh, as he was writing it, and that he thought that the the, the movie matched it perfectly. 
And there's brilliant simplicity to a lot of what follows. I mean, for most of the rest of the movie is watching our hero problem solving with ordinary objects at an alien scale. Mm-hmm. So he he's hungry and he has to search for food. And there he looks across and he sees something. He realizes it is a mouse trap, and it does have cheese on it, but it's a mouse trap. <laughs> oh my god! And you know exactly what's going to happen. He's going to try and rob that mouse trap, and he's problem solving with the mouse trap. But he's also really hungry and desperate, and. It's the, the same sort of gimmick. Like, this has probably played out more or less in so many cartoons over the, the days. Like, I feel like this is a basic Tom and Jerry kind of a bit. Mm-hmm. But but it really is scary to watch. Like, I actually cried out a few times as he's, like, fumbling with the cheese and nearly uh, making the trap um, uh, go off. It's uh, it's great. So, eventually, Scott realizes that there is uh, some cake that Louise left on a plate on a shelf uh, and if he could just get to that, he could eat that, but it's way, way high up. So it's like a mountain climb, basically, mm-hmm. to get to it. And uh, we see all kinds of things happen. I don't want to spoil every little detail, but there are, uh, you know, there's discovery of a sewing kit and a pin cushion and some pins that can be manipulated to form weapons and a kind of grappling hook. Um there is uh, uh, there is a, a sequence where he has to like cross a gap in a wooden crate, jumping from from one thing to another. Oh yeah! And I did want to do one okay uh, brief monster science digression that will be familiar to people who have been listening to Weird House Cinema for a while because I talked about the same source in our episode on robot jocks. But pedantic science note. Uh, which, by the way, should not take away from your enjoyment of this part of the movie, because if you know, it, like, it, you shouldn't get hung up on physical implausibility if it works in the story. But uh, I think the reality is, if you were only a couple of inches tall, falling a great distance would be far less of a concern to you, way less of a threatening prospect than it is to people with bodies of of our absolute size. And this is something that is discussed in the magnificent J.B.S. Haldane essay from 1926 called On Being the Right Size. And this is the essay that uh, explains how essentially there are different regimes of physical forces that present threats and problems to to an organism depending on what its absolute size is. So for tiny animals, there actually is not that much of a threat due to gravity. Like, you know, falling a great distance is not going to harm a very small animal very much. But there is a much greater threat to small animals from the surface tension of water, which is a theme that I would like to see explored to more horrific ends in shrink movies. I seem to recall, it's been a long time since I watched Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but I think there's a scene in that where uh, there are water droplets following, falling uh, from the from the sky, maybe like a sprinkler system, and they're falling like like bombs. Mm, yeah. So to a certain extent, uh, that, it, that it, it gets into this topic. Well, to explain, okay, so uh, Haldane uh, gives this, you know, whole thing. The, the famous line is he's talking about animals falling down a thousand-yard mine shaft. He says, you know, a tiny mouse drops down a thousand-yard mine shaft, and it might get a shock when it's the bottom. But if the if the bottom is relatively soft, uh, it will probably be okay. But then he says, a rat is killed, a man is broken, a horse splashes. 
Four, the resistance presented to movement by the air is proportional to the surface of the moving object. Divide an animal's length, breadth, and height each by ten. Its weight is reduced to a thousandth, but its surface only a hundredth. So the resistance to falling in the case of a small animal is relatively ten times greater than the driving force. So that's why being small, falling is less of a big deal. But he goes on. An insect, therefore, is not afraid of gravity. It can fall without danger and can cling to the ceiling with remarkably little trouble. It can go in for elegant and fantastic forms of support like that of the daddy long legs. But there is a force which is as formidable to an insect as gravitation to a mammal. This is surface tension. A man coming out of a bath carries with him a film of water about one-fiftieth of an inch in thickness. This weighs roughly a pound. A wet mouse has to carry about its own weight of water. A wet fly has to lift many times its own weight. And, as everyone knows, a fly once wetted by water or any other liquid is in a very serious position indeed. An insect going for a drink is in uh, a great danger as a man leaning out over a precipice in search of food. If it once falls into the grip of the surface tension of the water, that is to say, gets wet... It is likely to remain so until it drowns. A few insects, such as water beetles, contrive to be unwettable. The majority keep well away from their drink by means of a long proboscis. Mm. And so this made me think more uh, about a possibly more horrifying take on the water heater scene that will follow in, in the movie. Um, now, uh, I believe this came up in our episode on robot jocks because we were talking about how, you know, you, if you had real hundred foot tall robots actually slugging it out, they would really, really need to worry about gravity. I think basically any fall would destroy them. Yeah. And the idea of having a bipedal one is just even crazier because it just yeah. makes them more susceptible to falls. So if, if you're out there thinking about making your own shrink movie, I want to see the truly horrific take on the surface tension of water that is, uh, that is implied by Haldane's essay here. Ooh. That any drop of water is almost kind of like the blob. It's just... Ugh. Yeah, I don't know. I, I only saw the first of these Ant-Man movies that came out, so I don't know if they ever get into any of that. I mean, it seems like they're at least more recently gotten more down to like quantum stuff uh, where you're not even... You know, they just turn it into like alien worlds and so forth. Mm, okay. Uh, yeah, I've never seen any of those. The first one was fun. I remember. The first one was fun. Anyway, sorry. But to come back to the plot of The Incredible Shrinking Man. So uh, Scott uh, finally makes his way up to the cake. He achieves some cake, but it is stale once he gets to it. Uh, and it's sitting right in the shadow of a giant spider web. Uh, and there's a part where he goes up to sort of a vent grate and looks out through it to see a bird out in the yard, which of course to him at this point would be like a dinosaur, like a giant mm -hmm. T-Rex. Uh, and he looks out at the world outside and he becomes sort of like, he starts laughing, but he's also angry. And he says in narration, my prison, almost as far as I could see, a gray, friendless area of space and time. And I resolved that as man had dominated the world of the sun, so I would dominate my world. So he sets about he, he sets up a shelter for himself in a matchbox. Oh, and he has to retreat to it in a in a terrifying spider attack. Yeah, the, the spider that lives in the web at the top next to the cake is clearly played by a tarantula. Uh, which, of course, would not be living in that, that web, or I'm not even sure it would be in this basement, uh, but who knows how it supposedly got there. At any rate, it still looks great. 
great use of a tarantula, uh, a live tarantula in this. Uh, and of course, it fits because it's the director of tarantula. Do you think he used the same tarantula guy from wh- whoever provided tarantulas for tarantula? I don't know, maybe. Uh, but I think he did play on some of his experience shooting tarantulas because they had certain, there were certain things they learned about, like, you know, what's what variety of tarantula you need. You, like, you need an animal that's big enough and moves uh, appropriately that you can then create the special effects around it. There are a lot of uh, kind of hokey scenes out there in cinema where someone uh, uh, fights a, a, a quote-unquote giant animal in forced perspective and so forth and split screen. Uh, but this one's really good. Like this one, they put a lot of effort into making it look 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 great. Yeah, and so there are uh, some major struggles in the final stretch of the film. He has to do battle with the with the spider in order to survive. Uh, before that, there's a a scene of a great flood that comes when the the water heater bursts. Um, and and in this scene, you know, uh, Louise and Charlie they finally do come down to the cellar, which is what he'd been waiting on. He was like, okay, when they're here, I can call out to them and they'll mm-hmm. and they'll get me. But he's too he's too small for them to to hear or to see. Yeah, it's like he's he's really passed out of their lives, and he 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 has to realize it at this point. Uh, and there's a there is a scary scene with the flood. It, it doesn't quite do the the weird scale surface tension thing, but he does almost get washed down a drain, which is a horrifying prospect. Mm-hmm. But after surviving the flood, there's a change where Scott seems to gain a new kind of clarity and strength. He says, quote, a strange calm possessed me. I thought more clearly than I ever had before, as if my mind were bathed in a brilliant light. I recognized that part of my illness was rooted in hunger, and I remembered the food on the shelf, the cake threaded with spider web. I no longer felt hatred for the spider. Like myself, it struggled blindly for the means to survive. Mm. And so there is uh, ultimately a confrontation with the spider that involves uh, some some clever use of uh, of tools uh, again at the alien scale, uh, and then there there is uh, in the end a kind of soliloquy like uh, he he comes to realize that he somehow in uh, like in passing beyond the realm where humans can even recognize him and help him even uh, anymore like the fact that Louise couldn't even hear him calling out. It seems that somehow gives him a new sense of meaning in that, like, by being definitely wholly denied any prospect of of salvation from the world he knew, it's like he can now fully commit to existence on whatever new terms come to him, if that makes any sense. No, yeah, absolutely. Like, he's he has completely passed out of their world now. Like, he is... They thought him dead. They believed him to be dead. And now he kind of realizes that 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 part of his life is over and yeah. and whatever he is now, it is just, it's on a different scale. It's a different world with, but with different possibilities. I'm not going to read the entire thing in full, but yeah, he ends with giving this kind of speech where he says, I was continuing to shrink to become what the infinitesimal. What was I still a human being or was I the man of the future? Uh, he says the unbelievably small and the unbelievably vast eventually meet like the closing of a gigantic circle. And so he comes to feel that by shrinking down forever and ever and becoming ever smaller, he's also somehow becoming infinite. Yeah. I was not expecting such a transcendent and kind of psychedelic ending to this picture, but it it, it really almost brought to mind phase four, which yes. has a more overtly psychedelic ending and, and 
futuristic, far-seeing uh, ending. And this is, this is a little different, but but also like, feels that grand, feels that expansive, which again ties into this idea that he has become so small that he has become infinite or is becoming infinite. It has the, this in common with Phase 4 that both are like an ending where the uh, the protagonists will survive in a sense, but they are becoming so changed that they can no longer describe their experience in language. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, one of the uh, the extras on the Criterion Collection disc, they pointed out that in the novel, he basically, it's a little more of a downer, uh, and maybe it's something that works better on, on the page where he's basically like, he becomes nothing. I mm. have become nothing at the end. And they wanted to do something more upbeat for for the, the movie. The studio, of course, submitted an idea. They said, what if he gets big again and is reunited with his wife? <laughs> and, um, of course, uh, uh, Jack Arnold... conquers all in the- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, of course, Jack Arnold was like, no, we're, we're not doing that. Uh, <laughs> so, apparently, this ending is, uh, like, the, the whole... The, you know, the uh, small meets big and the closing of the circle and the infinite. Like this was what Jack Arnold brought to it for the most part. Like this was mostly his idea. Hmm. Yeah. And it has interesting references to God and, and stuff like that. Uh, that, I mean, that, that kind of came out of nowhere because there were previously no religious themes at all in the movie, but it also, I feel like kind of works. The only real downside I would say to the ending, which overall is great is again, the, delivery is a little uh i don't know a little speechy <laughs> mm-hmm. uh like i feel like it could have been the narration could have been a little more subtle but the the writing is excellent yeah well, we do see some visuals that kind of the like the, the, the arms of the, of the spiral galaxy and so yeah. forth as we're talking about the infinite yeah uh, so there are some stunning visuals in, in black and white to, to back it up but uh, uh but yeah i see what i see what you mean Oh, also when in his final, uh, when because he has to keep changing clothes because he's continually growing smaller, in his final uh, form, when he's giving this final speech, the clothing he's dressed in makes him look like a prophet. You know, he looks like yeah. a like John the Baptist from one of the Bible movies or something. Yeah, and he's just just going out there in, into the unknown, into the into a wild, and and uh, and ultimately in a world beyond humans because he has he has shrunk beyond their scale, and uh, it's yeah it's it's pretty tremendous. It it ends it on a on a great note, and you end up just looking back on it and being like, wow, that that film was really a a great ride. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Agree. So the Incredible Shrinking Man, uh, two two thumbs up both from me, both hands thumbs up. The Incredible. Shrinking, man. Yes, it's a it's a great one. And you know, I think uh, the current plan is that we are going to do another uh, incredible shrinking movie for next week. Yeah, uh, one that will hopefully be still as uh, as intellectually stimulating as this picture. <laughs> next week, we're planning on doing another shrink movie that is, from what I understand, a direct rip off of this one. <laughs> yeah, but it, it looks like it'll be a lot of fun. Okay. All right, we're going to go ahead and close this one out. But uh, first of all, I'll remind you that, yeah, we're primarily a science podcast with our core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind publishing in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We do uh, an Artifact or Monster Fact short form episode on Wednesdays. We do Listener Mail on Mondays. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film here on Weird House Cinema. If you want to see what other films we've covered on Weird House Cinema, they're 
there are a few different ways to do it. You can just look back through the podcast feed and, and do it that way. But also, if you go to letterboxd.com, that's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D, uh, we have a user uh, profile on there. It's called Weird House. And we have a list there of all the movies we've covered in order. And I also have some links to where you can listen to them on each individual listing. It's also a great way to sort of visualize what we've done, to break it up by decades or genre, or however you want to want to do it. Uh, and and the, the website, of course, is also a lot of fun. I also blog about these episodes at samutamusic.com. That's just my, my personal blog for this sort of thing. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.